Fermented Faith. Uh, my name is Jordan Bird, and I am joined with some special guests today. Fermented Faith is a podcast where we want to talk about the everyday things of life and the impact that the gospel has on them. And honestly, uh, it was it's moments like this that we that we really started this podcast is to be able to have honest conversations, really beyond the pulpit, um, about and how how do how do how do we flesh this out in real life uh, regarding whatever is going on. And obviously, our culture is swept up in uh, all sorts of uh, div- dividing things and but um, one of the, the most pressing is the, the issue of, of racism um, particularly in America and so um, we have uh, been looking forward to this conversation and uh, but I so I knew quickly that we, we would do a podcast about this but I also knew quickly that I had some some folks in mind that I wanted to join I didn't think it would be wise for just three white dudes to sit around and talk about race <laughs> that aren't police or really have you know what I mean we would just be pontificating about you know our own, own opinions and so um, I have some special guests that um, I was excited. It took us a minute to get together, but I hope it's it's worth it. So these are intentionally um, selected folks um, that um, we know each other. Um, you guys know each other. You, this is not the first time you guys have had these conversations with one another, and um, and you come from different perspectives, and um, and you live out um, really the the two uh, the most focused ends of. Of, of this division from police uh, in the black community. You guys have, have lived that for years. And so, and again, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. My hope is today is just to facilitate conversation and, um, and chime in where we can. But I just want to start by you guys giving a little bit of background of who we're talking to here. Um, so where'd you grow up and where are you now? And, um, and what do you do um, for a living? So, Byron, you want to start? Sure. Uh, Byron Farling, and I am. Born and raised here in, in Marion, with the exception of a couple of years that I spent in Litchfield, which is an even smaller rural community than we're in here. This, is, this has been my life. Um, I've been in law enforcement for 25 years now. Um, I have a beautiful wife that I've been married to for 25 years and three daughters. Uh, Jordan, you can yeah, appreciate man. that struggle. Um, it's definitely for real. The uh, the oldest one is uh, actually today is her twenty second birthday. So oh, wow. happy birthday, number one. Uh, yeah. Number two is sixteen. She'll be seventeen here in less than two months. And number three is fifteen. She just started driving recently with her driver's permit. So mm-hmm. and all the prayers my way that you can, please. Yeah. That's legit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go, go ahead, guys. Um, Heather Spell. I um, born and raised in Harrisburg, um, so Southern Illinois all my life, um, until about four years ago. Um, we have about a total of 20 kids, right, that we've had in and out of our home um, through fostering and mentorship. Um, we do have our uh, oldest son, BJ, um, and he is in his junior year of college playing basketball so um, I work as a 911 dispatcher here in Tallahassee Florida and I'm um, Bomani Spell I grew up um, south side of Chicago um, spent most of my adult life in southern Illinois um, college wise and you know found my college sweetheart got married and stayed in southern Illinois um, 
currently we're you know living in the southeast and i'm a college administrator okay so um and we all know each other from church so you guys are in florida now but uh you were a part of of the journey from from day one um and and for the first i don't know how many years but yeah would you guys move four years ago is that what you said we moved it's about the time I was becoming the pastor. Yeah, yeah. Because I was in Alabama in uh, 2015, but my wife stayed, so right. I left a little early, and she left in, go, in 2017. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. So so when I mentioned earlier that we've had, you know, we and you, you, you know, Byron and, and, and Bo, and then Byron and Heather, and then, you know, me and Bo, me and Heather, we've, we've had these conversations before as, uh, you know, on the – at following Michael Brown um, back in, was that 2014, I believe. Um, and then, you know, the election of 2016, you know, stirred up some stuff, uh, you know, and just plenty yeah. of instances here and there that, that we, has caused us to sort of have some conversations and um, in dialogue, even, you know, online and whatnot. So, so yeah, I, our hope is, is to model, uh, you know, conversation that that's healthy uh, and rooted in relationship, right. That, uh, and that's why I chose you guys, you know, um, is that you guys know each other. Um, you know, we've, we've done some life together, shed some tears together. And, um, and, and so, you know, we could speak candidly and, and honestly and, um, yeah, and, and go there with each other. So, um, to begin, I, I think it would be helpful if, if each of you just take a turn and, and just sort of briefly share what has the last few weeks been like for you guys? Um, you know, really since George Floyd, um, and there's been plenty since then, but, but what, what has that been like for you guys in your respective, uh, you know, positions of, of just life and then also professions and uh, just in general, just be honest, what's it been like for you? Go ahead, Go ahead Byron. Well, I, I would say selfishly, it's, it's been exhausting. Uh, again, I, I say that selfishly you know, because we've been barraged with information, just information in general, you know, uh, either professionally through work through social media, you know, I, I want to stay plugged in. I want to be aware of, of everything that's going on in the, the, the current events, but yet all the while keeping myself aware and plugged in, you know, it's, it's a, it's a barrage of information. A lot of it's bad news, bad information. Um, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, and it, it really is just exhausting. However, you know, it, it's, it's, been encouraging at the same time because all the while, you know, for me personally, as law enforcement dealing with all of the negative, you know, people like Bo and Heather have reached out, you know, and said, Hey, we're praying for you, you know, encourage you. And, yeah. and there's a lot of people that are doing that. It's, it's easy to get lost in the negatives, you know, and forget about all the people that are, that are praying for you and encouraging you. So that's been very helpful, you know, having, yeah. having that positive support. So just for context, because not everybody will be um, watching the video. So some people will just be hearing audio here. So, so just for context, you're a white cop. Right. And, and, and Bo, you're a black man. And Heather, you're, you're biracial, right? Correct. So, so I, I just, again, it, some of this will be lost if people don't know that. And so, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah so, so Brian, you, you've, uh, you've spent time at at least one protest Right. Uh, several. Okay. So, so several local protests uh, protecting 
uh, or, you know, I don't know how you would describe that. So, so that's been part of your week, not only just here, you know, over your, your last few weeks, you, you've literally been. Involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. It's it, depending on what side you're on, you know, some would say that, that you know, we're there to protect the community and others would say, no, we're here to protect the protesters. And mm. the fact of the matter is we're there to protect everybody yeah. and to mm. try to maintain peace. Certainly we, we encourage people to, to peacefully protest and we want their voices heard, uh, but we've got a duty to, protect the community and protect the, the protesters too. And you know, whenever the very people that you're protecting are holding signs and banners that that uh, are pretty you know, offensive to me personally, certainly are not a true representation of who I am or what I am. That that's tough. Yeah. It's tough. But like I said, you know, people that really know me have reached out and, sure. and encouraged and, and like so that that's good. You're hard not to love. <laughs> yeah, it's true, true. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you guys what's it been like for y'all personally professionally however you want to share i think with me it's um looking at the manner in which uh, george floyd uh, died it wasn't something that's unusual unfortunately it's almost to the point where um you become desensitized about it because you hear about it read about it um you know, we look at, uh, you know, Eric Garner, Samir Rice, uh, Rihanna in, in Louisville. This is something that in our community that we've, we've seen, we've spoken about, um, protested about. Um, I remember being very, no, not very young, let me just say this. I remember being a high school student and um, watching Rodney King um, tape on, on the news and having that conversation with, my mom and right when the Rodney King happened, I, I think I probably had my license maybe about a year or so. And so that spurred another talk as you know, putting quotes of how to react if you're pulled over, how to, what to say, what to do, how to keep their hands. Um, you know, and though know, George Floyd was just a, another reminder of things can go awry not necessarily because the, you know, the person may have done something wrong, but, you know, it can go awry for a myriad of reasons. Here in, in Florida, what's been going on is that there's been like in every other major town, you know, protesting. We haven't had any riots or any looting or any of that nature. It's been very respectful and organized. Um, the Tallahassee Police Department are there um, protecting and, and, and rolling with them. The protesters will march probably about a mile, a mile and a half. They have their signs, but nothing has been disruptive. Um, you know, you know, well, nothing huge, I should say, you know, not compared to other major cities, you know, like Chicago or Minneapolis or, or New York. None of that stuff has happened here. Uh, but from the college level, what we're receiving is a lot of the school isn't in session yet. But we received a lot of emails, um, letters, wanting to know what our institution is going to do as far as being in the forefront, how we're going to handle when students come back, how they're going to protest, uh, you know, trying to help students, I guess, make sense of it and try to give them an opportunity to speak, but not, you know, be disruptive to the community, to the classroom. So. 
But this has personally led to some more conversations with my kids about, you know, how they should react and what they're thinking, you know. And so as an older person, I've done, you know, some listening to them and how they felt about it. So it's been another call, another wake up call. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm. it's been a bit overwhelming, I think, because I ride that line of being biracial, right? That, um, and working for Ellie Yumble, that, um, that I'm getting a lot of personal messages in, um, asking me questions. A lot of my friends from back home in Harrisburg, um, who there's not a lot of people of color, right? There's, we're in groups. We have carrier meals, you know, Harrisburg's kind of a mixed situation. Um, and so what happens is they're asking questions. Friends that I've had since grade school literally have texted me and said, Heather, I'm going to be honest. This confuses me. And can you answer these questions? They feel safe. Right. Um, and some of them have expressed that they were scared of black people. And I think you've been around someone and her family, you know, this whole time, but they look at me as different. Yeah. Right. They look at me as different. I'm fair skinned. Um, I talk different. I'm going to use that like, you know, um, maybe I talk more like Southern Illinois. Um, and so there's that situation. Um, I'm on Facebook and I really do try to educate. I don't try to start fights and, and, and pick, but you know, there's some things that I think that if I just put out information, factual information about history of black people, then maybe that will answer some questions that people are having of why people of color are behaving the way that they are because of the systemic part of it, right? Which we don't learn that in schools in Southern Illinois. Um, A lot of times not anywhere, right? Um, And so, and then I have the dispatch side where I'm hearing these officers being called out for all these things in communities that is so heavy, right? And so, you know, I, and, and they're out there doing this job of protecting and serving and in some of the worst situations, right? We've had a few shootings here. We li- literally just three weeks ago had an officer shoot someone. And so it, you know, it, they're, hearing that is, is difficult. So I am also protective of them as well, right? So, because I recognize the job that they do. So, well, I want to. I want to say thanks for being willing to have this conversation because it's just even as even as you're describing that, I got to think that's a little bit exhausting to be the person. Like it, it's got to be endearing on one hand, and I'm great. We're grateful to to have you to to be safe and have a conversation with, but that's got to be a little exhausting, right? To to always have to be the one that gets the questions. Right. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. yeah. But, but but that's where we're here, right? Like I I can't change everyone's heart and mind. All I can do is put out information and I can't speak for all biracial people, right? Because we, each of our lives have so many different experiences. I'm grateful that I grew up in Southern Illinois. It was, um, and with the family that I did, um, um, I, I was just telling Bo, I didn't necessarily experience a lot of color situations. Um, you know, I didn't have, 
except believe it or not, Jordan, from some family members. My white side of my family had some issues with my mom being with a black man, right? Like, so there was that. Um, And although it was either, it was very hushed and we didn't talk about it or it was addressed very like in your face, it's a wrong thing to do kind of thing, right? They have love for me, but they still were like, you know, not embracing what it was. I can imagine because that, that was, that's part of my story is I was raised in, you know, a, a good, what, what everybody in the community would call a, a good family. Uh, my grandpa was a honorable man, uh, served as mayor, police chief. I, I mean, helped bring in, um, you know, uh, sewer and plumbing to the city years ago. Like, uh, and so, honorable man that everybody that knows him and knows that I'm his grandson speaks like has a story about how he helped. <clears throat> um, but, on, but honestly, my family, like we were taught, like we weren't white supremacists, but man, there was, there, there was a, a racist implication. Like I was taught to view black men uh, with caution. I, I was taught that they, they will they likely be dangerous um, and to, yeah, to be cautious of them. Um, you know, and I remember conversations, uh, my mom actually, the, there was, was a black man that got promoted to be her boss um, within the, the prison system. And I remember as a kid going, well, what about him? You know, or what about his family? Because they would talk. And, and, and there was a distinction between uh, the N-word and black people. They would say, well, those people aren't N-words. Those, those, are black, those are good black people. And so for me, what that taught is, okay, if they wear khakis and tuck their shirts in, they're safe. Yes, yes. So that's what, that's what was embedded in me from, from a young age. Um, and then my church, you know, growing up in a small town, very rural country church, uh, it was preached from the pulpit not to um, be unequally yoked. And they were applying that to marriage. marriage. Yeah. And my, so, yes, my, my great grandfather said the same thing to my mother. She had a letter written about that. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a pastor of Evanston. Well, yeah. Absolutely, so, you know, red birds mate with red birds, and blue birds mate with blue birds. That that yeah. sort of language was was, you know, and and they would try to couch it. And well, we don't, we're not racist. We're not saying they're bad people, but we should we should be our own. Like they would use the language our own kind. Right, like we're not our own kind. We're <laughs> the story from the pulpit before, but I remember the moment whenever I I was just humiliated. Like I, I can remember exactly where I was in our high school. And one of my friends who had just become a Christian and had not grown up in church, had never heard any of this, his sister started dating a black guy. And I was like, hey, man, how you how you feeling about that? And he was like, I don't know what you mean. And I was like, well, you know, the Bible says that's wrong. And he was like, really? Where? Like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, it says we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. And he was like, oh, okay, what's that have to do with anything? And I was like, I remember this just like this moment of truth just washing over me like, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Like, what have I been taught? Yeah. And so I went to find one of my, you know, my teachers who was our FCA sponsor, you know, so I knew he was a Christian. And, and I said, hey, what? You know, so I'm 16, 17 at this point. And, and, I, and I said, hey, you know, is that, what does this mean? And he goes, yeah, that, that's talking about Christian, non-Christian. That's talking about spiritual, uh, you know, uh, levels of maturity, not uh, like, because the implication there, if you stop and think about it, the implication there is we're not equal. Correct. Like, that is absolutely from the beginning, right, Jordan? From the beginning, we're yeah. not equal. That that it's is the foundation that was that was embedded in me, and so, so, so I've always said, you know, 
and, and I think, and I spent a couple of years in St. Louis, uh, which I, I think helped me I, because frankly, I, you know, there was one biracial family in my high school because, but that, that was the only uh, color in my high school. Um, and so, you know, living in St. Louis helped, I think, have, have some more diversity for me and just meet some folks, but, and have relationships. But, um, but anyway, and so I always say like, it's not difficult for me to see um, how racism still exists and how it can in any institution. Uh, and so, you know, like for police, because if, if you take, not any, I used to say if you take the gospel out of my life, but that's not even true because my church was teaching me this stuff. So even if you just take the journey church, particularly out of my life, like I don't land in this church, then I would still have significant racial bias. And if you make me a cop, that's absolutely hundred percent embedded in me. Like, so it's easy for me to connect those dots. Sure. And I've said that a lot, but what I, what I realized lately is what I haven't said, I, I think perhaps might be more helpful for people as I'm trying to kind of relate to this is, so I'm, I'm taught from a young age that black, black men in particular are dangerous. Sure. That's what's taught to me. However, I've had zero experience to confirm that be true. Right. right. Never had a black man bring me harm. I've never even had that fear. You know what I mean? I've, I've never experienced that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ever. So that's never been confirmed to me. So it was, it was ingrained in me, but it's never been confirmed to me. So if I can sit back and relate and go, okay, now the black community has been teaching their kids things too, right? For generations based off of, you know, how they've been treated by the police, what laws they've experienced, what racism they've experienced and how they treat, you know, and I'll let you guys speak to that. But for me, I can just say, okay, I know they've been teaching their kids and grandkids certain things and, and to be, you know, because it's been historically true and validated. Um, and so if they're, if they're taught, just for example, that police, right or wrong, if they're taught that police are, uh, don't have their best interests in mind or that it could be dangerous and it might, whatever, just like I was taught a black man could be dangerous, but now they see it confirmed. Yes, sir. Over, you know, repeatedly in their own neighborhoods, perhaps or maybe not, at least now on TV, right? Because now everything is being captured on a cell phone. And so for me, I could see like, okay, that's different. Because again, I was taught these things, but it was, I've never had a black man harm me. I've never had that confirmed in my experience. They're taught these things and, and they have it confirmed, you know, at different ways. And, and so for me, it's easy to say, yeah, I, I get, we got a long way to go. Like it, it's, it's not difficult for me to say that that's why these things are here. So that, that's sort of my personal story. Um, uh, you know, and how I, I, tr- I, I try to relate to this and at the same time, like, I, I you know, I know I, I try to be empathetic toward when I, when I see people speaking ill of, of the police, like I think of men like this and, and other men. And so anyway, that's the challenge before us is to, is to sort of be able to navigate those things. And so um, that's the most I'm going to say, I'm going to shut up and let you guys <laughs> share because you have the more uh, relevant experience and conversation. So, uh, so, Bo, you, you sent you sent some context, and obviously, this is something that I don't know if you've spoke on before. Or I know you're at least uh, you know well read enough, you prepared. Uh, so, you, um, and you've got some books for us later, which I think is helpful. So maybe we don't always have to call you guys and ask questions. Uh, you know, we can call <laughs> <laughs> on. So anyway, but why don't you speak a little bit to the to how the black community has related. Have you know two police historically, and then obviously you know Byron. I want, I want to hear your response to that, and and um, yeah, so you can share however you want to start. You grew up in Chicago, right? 
Yes. And so that's, that's a city that gets pointed to all the time in this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. For black, black crime, for, you know, stats, everything goes to Chicago. I mean, first of all, yeah. we're in Illinois, so maybe that's, you know, we blame Chicago for everything, but um, down <laughs> here, but, but just in general, I think nationally, Chicago is, is Chicago and St. Louis get a lot of attention, but so, yeah, man, start wherever you want. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I thought about what you just said about how, what you're taught and how you were taught. Um, I know growing up in Chicago, my family taught me, uh, you know, of course, to be very careful with the police, but it wasn't until I got older that I really was able to manifest some of the lessons that my family was, was embedded in me. Um, growing up between the South Side and the West Side, going back and forth, which Chicago is very, very racially segregated. So majority of, of Black people live on those two sides of town. And this is a social economic thing as well. And, you know, and I know whenever I speak, I always tell people, you know, I don't speak for the entire black race. You know, only, you know, not one monolithic mind. You know, I, I, I do share my experiences. And what I remember is, and I remember telling my wife this, is that every person that was in a position of power that I came in contact with was a white person. And so it was a police officer, a teacher, a principal, a doctor. Uh, a judge, any of that, all your teaching. growing up, yeah, was in a position of power. Was always a white person, and so I was always taught you're not going to get a fair shake. Um, they're going to, you know, look at you, and so it was things that I remember. My grandmother told me about how I wear my clothes, uh, not to get tattoos, not to be in certain places at night. And I remember when I, I told my wife, my first experience with the police, my very first experience, I remember um, I had got some birthday money. I was eight years old, so eight or nine. So I was extremely excited. Um, and I was saving all my little pennies because it was a toy I wanted to go buy. Yeah. Um, and so the toy store is about five blocks away from the house or whatever. And so, you know, back then, you didn't really worry about sending your kids off, you know, going to the store or whatever, because it wasn't a big deal. You know, you knew everyone in the neighborhood and, you know, back then, and it was, you know, very good culture on that. And so it was raining, pouring down rain. So I put all my stuff and I went to the store, bought this little transformer toy. And I, and I, and I put it in, I had a, a coat that had a, a pocket inside. So I put it in my pocket. And so I'm walking down the street, stopped at the stoplight. And the police car swarmed on me real quick, um, got out, they jumped out, and immediately they, both of them had their guns. And so I didn't process it until I was older because I didn't really think, you know, like I was scared, but I wasn't afraid for my life. I, I guess I put it that way. And they were like, what do you have in your pocket? And they slammed me against the wall and they went through me and, you know, searched me and plugged the toy and they threw the toy on the floor, on the ground. And went through, you know, circuit again. It was like, and I remember him saying, well, he doesn't have anything. And the guy kind of just nudged my head and they got back in the car and left, you know. And, you know, that was my really first experience. Eight or nine. Yeah, eight or nine. And so, and I remember kind of like thinking, I must have did something wrong. It was my fault. And, you know, um, and so when I went home and I told my great aunt what happened, she confirmed it. She was like, you shouldn't have had that toy in your pocket that made a bolt 
or they wouldn't have, you know, pulled over on you. And so I, I kept that in, like, okay, that was my fault. So it wasn't until I got older that I realized that I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't my fault. But that set a pattern of how I felt about police officers, you know, going for that, because that was my first experience. Sure. Um, you know, we didn't have opportunity to have like police officers come into the to classrooms. Like I used to read the books about that. How they come into the classroom and say I'm officer friendly and you know, you know, I was going to public school in Chicago. So we didn't have that opportunity to have that community relationship with uh, police officers. And and so as I got older, you know, things will happen. And I, let me just put this out there. I was not the best kid either. So I don't want, I want to make it seem as if I'm just a victim of everything that happened because that wasn't. I did things that I shouldn't have done. And so, um, so it was that give and take concept. But I do like what you said. That was in my family as well. Marry within your race. Build with, you know, your own community. Um, you know, it wasn't a thought of moving out of Chicago and doing anything. It was best like get your wife, get your family, find a nice little suburb of Chicago to raise your to raise your family because you want to go to a better school district. And so, you know, I was, you know, that was how we, you know, we were taught. Now, my family was a little different because, um, just to be honest and give this context. I'm the darkest person in my family. Okay. So my family was you know, extremely light. They're my wife's complexion. And so right. there's some colorism that goes on within the black community as well, between uh, a lighter shade person and a dark shade person. And so I'm battling two fronts. So I'm battling what my family is telling me about how white people would treat me, but I'm also battling how um, the color dynamic of how they treated me. Really, and so on two fronts, I'm battling my blackness. Do I do I accept my blackness? Do I expose my blackness? Do I parade my blackness? Should I keep it? You know, because you know, on those two fronts, you never know how they're going to be accepted. Now, this is something I'm I'm learning as a young child growing up with that. It wasn't until I got older, I'm reading more. You know, fortunately, my mom and my aunts were big, you know, avid, you know, on giving me books to read about being prideful and being black and seeing people who look like me in successful venues in life. And so that was I, I was fortunate to have that because now I can see not just a sports figure, you know, a Michael Jordan or Oprah Winfrey, you know, not someone just in entertainment, but now I can see business. You know, I can see Johnson. I can see the CEO of Converse. You know, I can see uh, the creator of uh, the water gun. And so I learned early, unfortunately, about having some black pride. And so that made my experience a little different. When I came to Southern Illinois. <laughs> culture shock. It was a complete culture <laughs> shock. We couldn't believe white people were poor. I did because <laughs> I was taught that white people, and if they were poor, it was their fault. But in Chicago, I never saw poor white people because we didn't have trailer homes and, and things of that nature. They didn't live in the in the section eight housing and stuff like that. That's what I saw mainly black people in that. In, in, in that. And so when I went to Southern Illinois, you know, 
it blew my mind. I didn't understand. I, I remember. I took him to Harrisburg and yeah. he's been to Eddieville. He's been, because we yeah. have our family reunions there, right? So he sees that, you know, yeah. And, you know, I remember when she took me to see her family <laughs> and she was, you know, I was like, what, what side of the family is? She said, it's the white side. And we pulled up in the housing. And I remember this conversation. I said, what are we doing here? She's like, we're going to see my family. And she was like, and I was like, well, I didn't see, we're going to see the white side. She said, we are. And I was like, why are we here? And she couldn't understand it. And it broke down. It had no clue. Normal that, for me. Yeah. That white people actually, there are poor white people. Right. I had no clue. The only ones I saw in Chicago that I were poor were the homeless that were downtown. But, you know, but that was circumstances a lot of times out of the control. I never saw working class or lower class socioeconomic white people. That I, it, it blew my mind. And so then I learned about Southern Illinois where you know, where I'm not saying that there isn't some racism, but mainly it's socioeconomic. People can live side by side because it's based on a job you have. So whether you're a coal miner, um, if you work in retail, you know, your, yeah, your neighbor can be technically someone who doesn't like you. But economic wise, you have no choice but to live next to each other. Where Chicago, it was completely segregated. And so we never, you know, I never saw that. Wow. That's fascinating. I've never. I've never heard you tell that. I've never thought about that either because, you know, this is the water we swim in. It's like telling a fish about water. It's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Brian, you, I mean, just share, man, wherever you want to start. I don't know if you have personal, you know, how you were, were you taught to, to view black people any differently or do you just want to jump right into police? Uh, however you want to go, man. Well, the, you know, racism that, that directly towards me you know, just obviously, like I said before, just in the last few weeks, I have been, you know, to my face, called out, you know, with expletives, you know, you're a racist during these protests. Called a pig. Right. Right. But I can go back over the last 25 years, I've been accused of being racist more times than I can count. And In your uniform or just in general? In uniform. And it's usually, you know, I, I have got my LIDAR speed detection device in my hand and I shoot a car that's a half a mile away from me. It's 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, make a traffic stop. And, Oh, you stopped me because I'm black. <laughs> no, I stopped you because you were driving 20 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. And I certainly couldn't see what color you were at a half mile away. I could see that your car was red, but I certainly couldn't see who was driving it. Uh, and, and that used to really irritate me because you know, I, I, I never felt like I was a racist. You know, I, I didn't, I grew up in a conservative Christian home. It, you know, we, we weren't taught that. Uh, how, how diverse was Marion when you were in high school? Not very. I didn't realize that it wasn't. I mean, I had, I had black friends in the school. Uh, and, you know, we, it was more than Pope County, but sure. But, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. Not. but, you know, I mean, and, and we played sports together, but I, I never really thought about it you know it, it wasn't really it wasn't something there was no racial divide sure. that i recognized mm -hmm. you know now looking back as an adult yeah i, I could see you know where, where there certainly were but i mean we never we never butted heads with each other because the black kids or the white kids you know, so on and so forth um <clears throat> but you know and and i i hate to admit this but i hate to read i absolutely hate <laughs> um, i did I did listen to on audiobook the uh, 
uh, under our skin. You were, you got through it all already? I did. Dang, I, did. I just sent it to my Congratulations. <laughs> that book and, you know, over the years having conversations with Bo and Heather and having conversations with some other friends, you know, that are, that are of color or black. I was talking to a guy uh, just in the last week and I was, you know, trying to be careful not to say black man and he corrected me. <laughs> he said, he said, it's black. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. I was cautious of that. Even whenever I was explaining earlier who we were talking to, I was cautious. Of that. Like, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying, you know what I mean? Like, and that's part of the, part of the it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be offensive, but I'm anyway. And it, I understand that it depends on who you're talking to yeah. because, you know, I, I have heard, some and Heather, I'll, I'll call you out specifically. I've heard you use the phrase "person of color," you know, and I'm assuming that's because that's something that is important to you. Whereas the guy that I was talking to on the phone a couple of days back, you know, he, he he wanted me to call him a black man, and whenever we're talking about police officers, he wanted black police officers, you know, in our community. But anyway, my my point being is that over the years, I would get really irritated whenever somebody would accuse me of being a racist because mm -hmm. I stopped them for violating the law. And uh, you front somebody out like that, and it ruffles their feathers. So what do you do with that? You turn around and give them a break. You go easy on them because they, they mm -hmm. just made you mad. So my point being is now that I have, have spent a lot of time talking to the people that understand and, and listening, not reading, but listening <laughs> to a book, that's and, how I read it. And, and, I didn't. I didn't read it either. Right. I right. Listened to it. <laughs> you got to take yeah. advantage of the resources that are available. But now I understand why, why I got that response. Mm. You know, over over the years, where I never understood it before, but now I still don't like being accused of being racist. But now I can step back away from it, and I can say, you know what, you're wrong. However, I understand why. Wow. You said what you said. I understand why you feel that way, and and I can I can be more empathetic, hmm. you know, and 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 not, you know, because the truth of the matter is, police officers with within reason have have uh, uh, the ability to to kind of give a little bit of grace, sure. you know, and and use uh, and leeway, you know, for petty traffic offenses. I certainly would especially when I name drop you, then they let me. No, I'm just <laughs> Jim does that too, right? <laughs> as far as you know, racism—that that's the biggest thing for me over the years has been where I feel like I've been falsely, where it used to really irritate me. Now I'm like, you know, it's still not true, sure. you know, but I understand where it's coming from in the long term. Do you think it's different? You're like obviously location and context informs so many things, but like I don't know uh, how di how much does that play a role? The fact that that you have been a you know police officer in Southern Illinois uh, because of the thing, like because of what Bo was talking about earlier in urban areas, it, it neighborhoods are concentrated and you know you know black and white and and so forth, and even other races you know tend to live together and, and because that's not true here 
I know there has to be a different, I don't even know what I'm asking, but there, there, there's a little bit of a difference when we're talking about, you know, your experience as police is not the same, obviously as Chicago PD, you know? Right. Um, and, and the, another thing that's going to vary from one department to the next, what kind of law enforcement you do. Uh, you know, for years I worked at a, at a local sheriff's department and the majority of my calls were whenever a, a telecommunicator or call taker received the call and they send me to that call. So you know, that was, that was just being reactive. I, I'm not, I'm not hunting any particular person. I'm just responding to calls that come in. Right. Uh, and that's the way it was for a long time. And then uh, later on, whenever I changed departments, my, my mission kind of came and I spend a lot of time on the interstate. You know, who travels on the interstate? Black people. Everybody. Black people. Right. You know, all, all, Nation, sure. don't pick and choose, you know. And, and our focus is traffic safety. So we're all about slowing traffic down and trying to make motoring public safer. So we're exposed to a different kind of law enforcement than, say, you would if you were assigned to a patrol. You know, Chicago Police Department in the neighborhood that Bo grew up in. Yeah. Or if you were assigned to a police department, in St. Know, Louis. Exactly. I think my experience is that um, I did grow up where I had members of my family who were um, uh, law enforcement officers um, in some form or fashion. Um, my my aunt was a very well known dispatcher in Harrisburg, and so I, when there was little you know get-togethers and stuff, you know. Um, the black side of my family would definitely get together with law enforcement. So our view was probably, a well, I know it was different, right? There was also, they patrol. Like, um, I remember being younger, um, the pool was way across town and it would start off maybe three of us on the Doris Heights side of Harrisburg and we would just slowly pick up people as we were migrating to the center of the summer fun, which was the park, right? And they would come out and they would just ask us kids, like, hey, how's everything going? You know, um, they were in our schools. They were very active. That's changed. That's changed. Law enforcement um, doesn't seem to be involved like that, local law enforcement. Um, so my aspects of policing wasn't horrible. And when I seen it utilized, for me, it was in a proper way, just like, you know, they were doing something wrong. Police were called and, and whatever came from it came from it because of your actions, right. That you did. So, um, I didn't see any negativity there. Um, and so I think that's a little bit has changed that probably needs to maybe get back into, <laughs> you know, um, community. I mean, we, we talk about it in church, right? We're, we have, the big community of church, and then we break down into our small groups, and that's what we're talking about. That needs to happen. And um, and and I also the the strange thing though, Byron, is that the one thing that I did notice um, was that for the local, there was no people of color in uniform, right? Um, now on, you know, on a different level, there was a guy that we knew um, from Carrier Mills. Um, that was on the larger end, um, and his family was well known. Um, I don't know if I can say his name. His name was Gooch, 
And, and so he was someone that we looked at that we were like, okay, he's a good guy. And so we know that. Right. And so we didn't have those negatives. Um, but like I said, times have been changing, even with law enforcement officers, as well as community. So now that's interesting. because I, I look at her relationship and how she knew the person's name. We knew an officer's name by reputation. Um, growing up in, in the 80s and 90s um, in Chicago, we grew up, up under this detective called uh, uh, John Burke. He's, you know, notorious in um, having a, a hit squad. And what he would do was for unsolved crimes or things of that nature, um, they had a torture chamber on, on Florinoy on the west side where they would take um, black men down there and they would beat them with uh, telephone books. Uh, the first time I ever heard of waterboarding was not because of a war, but because of that. They were tortured into confessions. And this guy ran it from the 70s until like 93 when he was actually finally fired. But wow. you knew about it as a kid on the street. Like you. Yeah, you, you knew about it. If you got hit, if you got picked up by the hit squad, we weren't going to see you again. Wow. It, it, was, it was well known that, you know, they were forced a confession out of you. You wouldn't sleep for three or four days. It's the techniques that they used to force confessions out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of young black men. And so when he finally, when it finally broke, and uh, I remember the Sun-Times ran an article on it, and he, he moved to Florida, tried to get away. And he got fired, he moved. Uh, and so there was a big discussion about all of these arrests that he and his compadres did. Were they going to get a new trial? You know, all this other stuff. But what wound up happening was that he got picked up on a federal charge of something small, and he wound up doing like four and a half years, and that was it. But he impacted hundreds upon hundreds of families and, you know, of forced confessions, of torture, breaking all type of, you know, you know federal and state laws on how to deal with, you know, um, with people in the community. And, you know, that builds up another reason of mistrust that we had. You know, and like Heather said, I think it would have been a great idea if we would have gotten some known officers that came to the school, if, you know, we saw them in a, you know, in a positive light, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, we wanted that interaction. You know, we wanted as a community to know who was policing us. And I remember when black police officers would, you know, and I'm not saying all, but in, in some of my experience, black police officers were probably the more aggressive. When, when dealing with us as teenagers. Now, like I said, we, and I, I'm, I'm going to say it again, I wasn't the best kid at all, and I'm not going to act like I was, you know, but, you know, it was some things that I probably, you know, did I need someone to sternly put me in my place? Absolutely. And, I, you know, and if it was an officer of that, I, you know, I look back now, I don't have a problem with that conversation of, young man, you know what you're doing, you should do better, this is going to be the consequences. Yeah. And I totally respect, understand that. And so, in some cases, that would happen. And in some cases, it was just, you know, throwing you on a hot hood, um, throwing you in the mud, um, taking you in the alley, scaring you, you know, things of that nature. So it was, it was, you know, I, I read articles today about the mental health and how, how racism is a mental health issue now. And that, you know, how a lot of um, people of color can pr probably suffer from some type of PTSD. You know, of things that you've dealt with, especially in larger areas. 
Um, and so I think what has to happen is it has to be that coming together of, of reform of, you know, the community and the police officers working together uh, on how the best way to do things, whether it's, you know, bringing social workers in, uh, sociologists in, mental health professionals in, or going on calls, you know, because now that my wife tells me, you know, a lot of stuff that goes on with law enforcement, man, guys are faced with a call that could, that could mirror from, you know, loitering to a, a mass murder, and you never know what you're walking into. You know, you always got to be so... I am sympathetic on that point, you know, because that's a lot to try to eat and try to, you know, try to, you know, deal with because I I would assume just like everyone else, you know, Barry wants to go home to his family as well at the end of the night, just like everyone else in the community. But it's, you know, it has to be that coming together point of of a median. And I think um, what has happened is that especially in, in this day and time right now, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I think what has happened is that I think a lot of people, you know, especially white people are, are probably now being witness to, because of cell phone footage, some of the bad things that happen. You know, and it's unfortunate that all officers get painted in this bad light, you know, because uh, that's horrible because you have, you know, God knows whatever minute amount that's going haywire in a police department. Not all officers think like that. The ones who act like that, you know, but I, I, I think it comes to a point where now that cell phone video, video footage is being, you know, out there more people are, you know, especially non-people of color who see it. Oh, wow. This is some of the things that you guys have been talking about, you know, but I think it works both ways because I've also seen footage where officers were be put in danger and they have a split second to decide how to react. And so, you know, that's what has to be that that yeah. coming together of community policing together. Now, I've heard both of you now relate to the other side, right? Now we ain't get, we're not we're not seeing that in the media. You're right; that ain't that's not newsworthy, right? And so, this is part of our problem is the media is it drives us to these polls uh, to see everything through this lens, and and so I'd be interested to to hear you know each of you speak about. How do we do that? Because the narrative becomes oppressor and oppressed, and 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 just that, like it's there's no other conversation to be had, and and so to ignore the history of of the black community and in, in America, you know, like to dismiss that and to say that racism is food, like that that's like I don't understand how people can can go there, but also to to defund the police, like you know, like we, do we have to go to these polls? Do we have to? To, to run there. And, and that's part of what the majority culture, like, you know, and, and that's a whole nother landmine of an inflammatory thing. Like, you know, I, I didn't say privilege, but that's what I'm implying, you know, and so, because, because here's the deal. Um, you know, the, the messed out redneck down the street, white guy that, that, you know, you or one of your um, you know, fellow officers arrested the other day. And, you know, first of all, it doesn't really make the news, but if it did, if I drive by and see him, you know, resisting y'all and acting a fool, here's the deal. Nobody associates me with that guy, right? Like nobody, nobody says, Oh, you know, because, because that guy's white and Jordan's white, you know, Jordan is like that guy, but that's not true for minority cultures. 
And it's also not true for police. And so, so we have those dynamics, right? So you got, so you see George Floyd on the news. I see him and I, and, and it's, and it's, it's one thing you guys see him and you see, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing you see yourselves or your son or, you know what I mean? Like that could be, uh, and then at the same time you see, uh, you know, that, that case I feel like is not a, a great one. Cause I've heard no, I've heard no police officer defend what Derek Chauvin did, but one that's perhaps not as clear about if you go back to the Michael Brown one, right. That, that one's, it's not as clear that, you know, we, that we don't know everything that happened there. And so you see how people are speaking of police in general and, and Darren Wilson, you probably, you see that differently than I do, right? Sure. Because you relate sure. to, to him in a way that, that, that we don't. And so how do we, how do we get where, so you guys both just acknowledged, okay, I see, you know, and that was part of conversation and reading a book and, and you said, okay, you're hearing stories from your, your wife who's taking calls from dispatch. And so how do we move forward? Because I think that's a lot of what we need. And, and both, so you said, you know, community engagement, but, um, and, and one of the questions I want to ask you guys, and maybe this is related, what is the one thing that, that you just find yourself screaming uh, through, you know, this, you know, through the news coverage, through the conversations, through the Facebook post that you find yourself screaming inwardly and wishing that you could make a PSA to the world, right? If, if there's just one thing, like what I wish everybody would just get this. Um, so I asked like four questions in there. So you can, you can say, but <laughs> what uh, can I say? I, 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 let me say, I think that for me, the, the biggest thing that I recognize is that one, there are so many people on all spectrums that are not educated with history, mm-hmm. right? I think that there's one person I was talking to from back home and she had posted that, the, Byron, I support you. I'm going to make sure that my kids respect authority, right? Okay. And, and I was thinking... You know, I, I think that most people, and I, when I say people of color, it's because I'm trying to encompass everyone of, of who is non-white, right? Okay. So when I say that people of color, I think that for the most part, we do, we do that as well as a whole. You're always going to have exceptions to every rule, right? You just will. But I think as a whole, we yeah. all want the same thing because respect starts at home. So if you respect your parents, then you're going to respect those people out in your community, right? Like that's just a normal thing to do. So it kind of took me back a little bit, you know? And then they respond when I told him my story of my son who was 13 years old when he first had a gun pulled on him um, because they were moving people, you know, and, and there was just some confusion. But right away, the officers, you know, from our hometown and the next hometown can you tell? Can you tell that story in a little more detail? Like so, sure. so like, uh, my son and I, there was DJ, and then there were I think we had three other kids that we were mentoring or fostering at the time, and um, so they were helping um, move a friend of ours um, from one location to the other, and someone a neighbor had called and thought that they were robbing and were aggressive and whatever. And um, they were loud. I mean, there were a bunch of kids moving in the heat. They didn't want to do it, but it was a good, you know, it's something they needed to help out with a friend. And so um, next thing you know, they're at the new location and there were like six cop cars that pulled up, guns drawn, canine unit out. 
um, they put these young kids at gunpoint on the, you know, on the hood of the car, or they had put bow in handcuffs and they searched and they were like, what's going on? They, you know, without asking any questions, without even coming in peacefully and saying, hey, you know, we got this call. Now I try to take it from a now, right? I try to take it from a law enforcement officer. They get this call, they're dispatched out, right? Um, and they don't know what's going on. But because we are a small community, this is, so it'd probably be different in the city, but because we are from a small community, I would think that they would have handled that a little bit different. Because they knew who the guy, they knew who the kids were because they were football players. They knew who I was because I was a coach, but it was, this is how I felt. We were presumed guilty. We had to prove ourselves that we didn't do anything wrong first. It was that aspect. And I'm talking about the guys came with, you know, automatic weapons. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, a, it was a militarization part because it was like, not, they've got not their sidearms. Like they, no, no. no, they had a sidearm. Like, so you get that call. What's what, cause it's always helpful for me to go. I, I just, I ask Brian all the time. All right. What would you have done in that situation? Right, right. I ask you just as much as I ask you know them. But so, can you speak to that? Like I, again, I don't. Uh, you weren't there, but but I was not there. In that what what would lead somebody to pull out a an AR versus a versus a Glock? That would that would certainly seem out of out of the norm, right, to me. And, and having been in this area for the majority of my career, uh, obviously they they felt. That this was a case that that uh, would warrant something like that. Clearly, it was correct. Right. But you know, if somebody had reported a home invasion, you know, multiple people involved because of their ignorance, you know, and sure. that happens all the time. Sure. People see something, and, and going back to because I was because I was raised, in, you know, the, the the black guys in in that particular correct trouble. I'm going to call into the police department and say, hey, these guys just did an armed robbery or they just did a home invasion on this house. That's going to that's going to bring a, a stronger response from law enforcement than hey, there's some suspicious activity going on at the house. Next year. Yeah. Again, I wasn't there. Don't know. No, you were. No, no we know. And there's no, layers to but it. It leads to that. But it leads to that, like that assumption that we don't, you know, people of color don't teach our kids behavior or that we, you know, and then I, I remember her response after I told that story. It was like, well, I, I am naive on a lot of things, but, but, but does that, but does that excuse yeah. what you said? Like the, the thought process, do you think that, that we don't, do you know what I mean? Like, I know this person, so I know that wasn't her train of thought, you know? Um, but I do know that a lot of people think that like, it, I, I think Jordan, that's my biggest thing is that to take people as an individual and not as a whole, they've made this political, they've yeah. made, you know, it, it's, it's, it's only political because the system needs to change, but you know, they attack black, black lives matter. But if you remember correctly, whenever the history tells us, even with black Panthers, black Panthers was established in the black community because they recognized that, Things needed to change. And there was crime that they were trying to take care of, um, you know, in the black community. Did it change? Yeah, because that power corrupts. Right. Like we know that. But not just. No. 
right? In general, power can corrupt. And I think that, you know, people of color are recognized we need work in our in our communities, right? There's things that need to happen in our own communities. And we can't, if, if you look at every time that a black community is raising up and there's organizations like Black Lives Matter, right? That if you take the negative aspect of everything, then, then you should be able to stand of why we take some negative um, aspects of policing, right? So if you think that all of it is negative, they're wrong. And I, I can't understand that train of thought because at the end of the day, it really is. Black people recognize that things need to change. But if every time that that change happens and we rally together, that we look like we're criminals and we're criminalized be, be, for doing that, then then how is it supposed to change? You want it to change in our communities, but how are you wanting it to change? You ha- we have to start with us. Yeah. Oh. So, what do you, so yeah. So if I if I'm the you know a lot of majority culture would say right now, but yeah, you're you're not like you're burning, you know, you're rioting, you're burning. Like they would they would make that connection and try to you know and dismiss. So speak to that because I love what you're saying and and you know and 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 some yeah. some some why you know some conservative you know they would they would like to take that soundbite from you and make that their thing they would say look there's a biracial woman and a you know and a, like they said this and they want to post that you know what i mean like because we're tempted to come exactly. this is a real thing so let me take you as my token person of color you <laughs> said something i agree with and let me blow that up on the internet Correct. You know? and but we, we can't have nuanced conversation and it makes me crazy about so many things like yes it me nuts that that we can't because that's what you're calling for is like we we've got to be able to 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 do that but you know because it's so polarized it's so politicized it's it's seemingly impossible so what would you say to the to the person who says yeah but you're not you're, you're rioting you know like that's not you're, you're now you're now we're you're enforcing the view of of what you're enforcing the stereotype that, that black people are criminals. I speak to that, if you would. Yeah, I think in some aspects, my wife and I disagree on this. Um, me being a history person, this is now, let me just put this out there. I don't agree with the looting. You know, I, I don't agree with that. You know, I yeah. don't agree with um, breaking it because I, I have a huge thing against, against theft. I hate that's one of the worst things ever that you take something that you don't deserve. And so I I, I hate that. But I also look at it from a historical point of view is that anytime that a people want to change, it wound up being violent. Not that I'm advocating violent, but I'm saying people are fed up and when their emotions let out, it turns to something physical. Because you look at, you know, you look at revolutions throughout, throughout history, the English revolution, the French revolution, the American revolution, the Spanish revolution, it was a revolution where it was the, the lower class people were fed up with how the upper class people were treating them and they destroyed everything to force a change. And so I look at I look at black people and they're seeing that. They're seeing, well, this is how this is how whites were able to force change on an economic level. So I'm gonna follow the pattern that's there. As a historian, I see that. Now, is it something I that I agree with? No, because of course the other side is gonna take that as saying. Well, you know, look at them. They're talking about because I always hear this 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 passage of oh well, 
is black on black crime and what you're doing, but you never hear white on white crime. You know, 93% of crime in white neighborhoods are committed by other white people, but you never hear that because it's not indicative. If I do something, if, if I do something personally, if I do something wrong, this is indicative of how black men think and act and walk. And like you said, if you did something. Yeah, that method that you were talking yeah. about, it wouldn't relate it. And yeah. the news is going to show it as, as it being um, not Bomani Spell, this individual did something stupid. The black community has done A, B, and C, you know. And so it's, you look at it, what we're facing, we're having to walk a fine line of making sure that allies are on our side because you look at civil rights. The reason why the civil rights passage was really pushed is because white allies were being harmed. And so the media was showing across the world what was going on. And so that's, you know, so we don't want to hurt our allies by doing something like, you know, tearing stuff. But you look at what's going on and in the news where you see that it was agitators coming into peaceful protesting delivering bricks, spraying on walls, and you see black people telling them, hey, don't do that. That's not what we want. We're li- we're, our message needs to be handled peacefully. But what the media shows the media. is that, yeah. oh, well, you know, it was damaged here. But you get cell phone vintage video of a young white person writing Black Lives Matter on a, on a wall, and black people tell them, don't do that. Don't destroy this. And so you're not, you know, the media doesn't give the full representation of what's going on. And I, I look at it when I watch it, some of the officers, you have officers who kneeled, who prayed with, who vowed change. You know, I look at Acevedo in Houston, you know, who really is trying to push wanting change. And then you have some like the sheriff in Arizona and Milwaukee who were like, you know, you Black Lives Matters are protest, you know, are, are agitators. And, you know, you have the president, you know, blaming Antifa. You even have the president's son calling Black Lives Matter protesters animals. And so you, you have that convulsion and no one is trying to heal the divide or listen to each other on the side and say what we need to do. So you wind up, in our point of view, we're always having to defend what we're doing, whether it's, it's peaceful, peaceful or not. Even, yeah. You know, if, if I was talking to a friend back home and, and, and she had, we had been talking since Kaepernick, right? Uh-huh. And, and, and now she's like, now she's talking about, well, Kaepernick was a good, you know, it was a good way to go. Although back yeah. then she was complaining about it. Yeah. You know, she was so against it. But I was like, I was telling her, he has this message and you may not like how he's doing it, but it's, but he's, he's, he's getting people to listen without saying a word. Right. But now we have these protests and she's like, I would take Kaepernick over these protests any day. You know, so it's like, what, what, what is, what is the world wanting? What is United States wanting people of color to do or change? They do it peacefully. We do it peacefully. It's nothing. They're demonized, but then if you lose, you're demonized. So it's kind of like six in one hand and half a dozen in the other. Yeah. I don't know, Byron. What do you think? I mean. Yeah, I mean, I know. I, I know. the one spot again. <laughs> Well, here, bro. I mean, uh, but you know, I know that I know that even Kaepernick that 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 was, you know, personally a, a difficult. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like that, you know, that we've had that conversation. Sure. Like, yeah. so I, I don't know. Walk us through. Well, I to me, I, I understand. Again, I understand why he's saying. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around 
what I would say is a disrespect to the, to the American flag. What I would say is disrespect for the national anthem. Now, I also understand that, that there's, there's a bigger, there's a bigger story. You know, there's a bigger narrative. There's a lot more that goes with that. But, you know, having, I, I was not uh, in service. My dad was, my uncles were, my, my grandfathers were. Uh, I've, because I did not serve in the military, and I kind of feel like I should have. I've always, I, mean, I, I get a little teary-eyed, you know, on on Veterans Day and, and Memorial Day and that kind of stuff because I have so much respect for the people that, sure. that, that you know protected our country absolutely and have fought to protect other people throughout the world under that flag. So you know, I I can't I can't step back far enough to take my place to take a, a, a position of I understand and I can I can relate to what he's doing. Me personally. Sure. You know, so yes, I, I struggle with that. Uh, you know, and, and again, like I said before, the, the the peaceful protests, I have, you know if the people knew how much financial resources the the law enforcement agencies were spending just to, to you know come out and and the police yeah. would probably be you know up in arms again you know that this peaceful protest cost the city of Marion or the city of Heron or the state of Illinois or whatever you know fill in the blank mm-hmm. you know there would be a lot of people that were upset about that but you know that's what we do we we protect people's freedoms to do that. I've told you guys before about, you know, for years we, we protected the, the Westboro Baptist Church people while they protested mm. at funerals. Yes, yes. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to endure Yeah, was because that that group of people that called themselves yeah. a church yes, doing some of the most despicable things and talking about, you know, our soldiers and, and our, our yeah. human race. You know, and, and that's what it was the human race. It was disgusting yeah. that I still protected them. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I struggle with, with with that particular you know avenue of protest. But you know, they, that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing here because you know, I I don't have to agree with everything that over Heather Spell say. Yeah. I don't have to agree with them. I have to respect them. And we have to have these conversations. And whenever she was talking about that Facebook post a while ago, and you know, my response to that was was yes, let's keep talking, you know, because you know, somebody that knows Heather Spell and knows her heart is going to listen and and hear her heart. Whereas if I was watching the news and there was some activist, you know, on the news and I was listening to their narrative, I'm gonna take my heels in and shut them down. Because I, I that's just my nature you know, yeah. uh, to resist that. But if it's somebody that I know and love, those spell tells me something that carries some weight, sure. you know, that, that carries some weight and it means something to me and I'm going to spend some time just like the book that you turned me on to. You know, I listened to that and there was a lot of it that I didn't, I didn't like, Sure, you know, I, I didn't agree with it. And I found myself talking back to <laughs> my phone, you know, as, as if he could hear me as, yeah. as he was reading his book to me. But, you know, as far as a police officers concerned, one thing, you know, that, and, and this goes back to the Facebook post again, 
police officers in general are a type A personality. They're, they're trained from the get go. You're in charge, be confident, be assertive, you know, and, and not to carry that air about you in order to command the respect of the people that are up to whatever. Yeah. Um, so I don't like to use this phrase, but it fits right here. A matter of black and white. Whenever a police officer is dealing with black, we're talking about not skin color, but law is, is black and white. So one of the reasons that, that I'm saying this is because the law is black and white. You broke the law. I'm going to arrest you. Whatever it takes, that's my duty. I swore an oath to whatever agency or to whatever state or whatever country to do this particular job. And uh, if, if you broke the law, you're going to be arrested. And I, I heard an old timer one time in Heron, actually, uh, at, a, at a beer tent. Somebody was being disruptive and he needed to go and could have been arrested. And uh, this this old timer told him, he said, he said, Bud, you're gonna you're gonna leave this beer tent one of three ways. You're either gonna walk out of here on your own, or you're gonna leave here cuffed up in the back of my squad car, or you're gonna leave here cuffed up in the back of an ambulance. One way or the other, you're leaving. Mm. Mm. That sounds harsh, you know, but he was giving him the opportunity sure. to walk away from here before anything happens. If not, this is what we're gonna do. And, and the thing that, that from a policeman's perspective, again, there's a lot of gray area, but uh, from, from the black and white, the thing that the police officers want to say, but it's complicated, is stop resisting the police. You know, because generically, I can look at most of these cases that have been in the news and I can say, well, you know, such and such was doing something wrong and the police tried to arrest him. And you know, as a police officer, you hear, well, they killed him because he told the guards, right? Or they killed him because he was using a, a $20, $20 bill, or they killed him because he was selling, you know, whatever cigarettes. And as a police officer, my response is no, no, they didn't kill him for any of those reasons. You know, they, they were using a level of force and, and that force, you know, ended up being the cause of, of their death. It wasn't that a police officer killed George Floyd because he, he you know, was using bill or that he had methamphetamine. He died as a result of that use of force. Because he resisted arrest. Because he resisted arrest. Now, again, I'm not saying that what he did was, was right. And, and that's, that's one of the unique things about that particular case is that the majority of law enforcement officers in the country absolutely agree that that was wrong. Right. You know, whereas in a lot of the other cases, they would argue, you know, yeah. that, that uh, the, the suspect is the one to blame. Uh, but my, my point. But being, that's a back. That's again back to our inability to have nuance. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think. I think the point being is that you know police officers in general would scream, "Stop resisting." Arrest, and that's one of the things that that uh, Benjamin wrote about in that book. Sure. He, t- he told his son, you know, or his, his kids, uh, "Don't resist the police." You know, Daddy's got money. Daddy's got bail money. If you get in trouble, Daddy will get you out of jail. You know, but don't resist the police. And you know, 
like I said before, now I can understand why mm. somebody wouldn't want to submit to a police officer, you know, because they've, they've learned, you know, they've seen or they've heard the stories of how dad was, was treated or how grandpa was treated or how, you know, yeah. grandparent, you know, anybody in their family that it's personal to them. And back to the police officer, it's not personal. You know, whenever I go to, to do my job, it's not personal at all. It's black and white. I've got a job to do, and, and this is the way it's going to be. You know, you know the, the whole uh, thought or question or, or comment of, uh, you know, I'm colorblind. We all know that nobody is colorblind, you know. Uh, right. Buddy right. Bachman says it would be it, would, it wouldn't be fair to ignore all this beautiful melanin that God put in my body. So I mean, he, he acknowledges. Yeah, the Bible's not colorblind. Like it's right. a colorful right. king. Right. That's, that's, that's right. right. You know, Bo and I were talking yesterday, Byron, about um, you know he was like, you know, Byron can go home. You know, he you take off your uniform, and you're just this white guy in the street. You know, you're just and they, they don't know if they don't know you, Byron, you know what I mean? They don't know that you're LEO, you know, whereas Bo, wherever he's at, they know he's a black man. Right. And there, there was um, there was something that came across where there was black law, law enforcement officers who were speaking and they were they asked them, they said, when you take off your uniform, do you feel safe? And some of them spoke that they did it because then they became just the average black guy that no one knew anything about, you know? And so we, you know, you wear those things, you know? And as a, you know, as LEO, you take off the, if you're a white LEO, you take off that uniform, you're just that white guy. And in America, you're kind of safe, right? You're just, it's just, it works that way. And I think that we, we have to get past that somehow. I mean, we don't have the answers, but having discussions and, 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 and at least understanding. And you're right, Byron, you, we don't have to agree upon everything. I never kneeled. I never. But I did recognize that some of the people who were kneeling were praying. It wasn't just about the disrespect, you know, and I so I felt that more than anything. Like if you're just sitting on a bench somewhere that I'm like, oh, what are you saying? You know, but when you kneel and there's people who are praying you know, then that's different because I, I, you know, in Southern Illinois, you do, you, you literally have certain things you can do in life. You go into the military, you become a union worker, you know, I mean, those are, there's, we're very limited. So that social economic thing that we can go back to is pretty much all the same. We have that in common. Um, but it's not like that all over. And people look at Bo and I as like these gyms, like there's no other people, very few people like Bo and I, right? We're the go-to black family. You know what I mean? Like we just, we're, we're that, the, anom- we're we're the not, anomalies of, of, of you know? black culture. Yeah. And, and we try to tell them, which I know you guys know that's not true, right? But and especially because you're in St. Louis, so you see a whole lot of different things. But in Southern Illinois, people don't see that often, right? Yeah. And so they have these stigmas that we're something special and we're not. There's a whole lot of people out there who look just like us that are saying the exact same thing, but because we're not in large masses, I don't think necessarily we're being heard. Yeah. You know? Man, guys, uh, 
we probably have to do a part two. This is so good. I, so I want to start. I want to start wrapping up, but I, and I want to ask. I want to ask you to, to respond to a couple more things, but I want to give you a second because I didn't give you this question ahead of time. But be thinking about how does the gospel? How is the gospel shaped where you are? So, Byron, how's the gospel shape your work or impact your work? And and Bo and Heather, how is the gospel shape? You know, your conversation and how you approach this. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But then I, I want us to end by talking about. You know, I, I, we don't have all the answers, but like, but let's talk about some things that are productive. How, because I think where we're at is is a this is a is a pretty healthy space. Like, if our if our if the if if, if our country could get to this place where we're not agreeing with each other on everything, but we're respecting and having dialogue, that would, but we're not there, right? So, majority, you know, there's there's majorities on either side that, that just aren't there. So, how do we? How do we get there? How do we move beyond the noise and the agendas? And 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 Byron and I were having a different conversation the other day about uh, the COVID nineteen, and and that also gets politicized, right? Yes, exploited as a political opportunity, as so many things do. But you know, Byron tells the story of of being uh, at a restaurant or trying to go into a restaurant and trying to make out what the signs. Could he go in without a mask or could he not? Because you forgot yours. You're not even an anarchist that doesn't. You you would have worn it. <laughs> forgot it right um and so he tells the story of this guy that comes out and is just like well you can't come in without you know i don't know you can he, he's basically made it really clear like yeah so i i asked him if i could if i could pull my shirt up for my oh yeah yeah at my face just long enough to come in an order and then walk back outside i got a harsh lit better stay there yeah you know so i'm already in there with my tail tucked between my yeah. legs but what I love, and I don't know that you were planning on connecting it to this conversation, but I, but for me, it was like, because then you said you sat there, you so you go outside, your wife goes in and orders for you, you go out, you sit outside and, and, and he turned person after person away about the mask thing at the door, stopped him, turned them away. And, and never once did he say, well, you can, you can hang out outside and put your, you know, you can call in your order and we'll bring it to you or you can put it online. He just told him no mask, you're not coming in. And then you sat there and ate and you said nobody came and wiped down the door handles after every person without a mask was opening it. Nobody wiped down the tabletops after people talked on their phone and then set it down face down. Um, you know, there was no cleaning. So your conclusion was he's not actually worried about our health and, and the COVID-19 being dangerous. There's just a mask agenda. Like he's just picking out yeah. that and harping on that thing. Yeah. So for me, it's that was so insightful. It's like that's what happens in this conversation with race so often is we just want to scream our position louder and louder. Yeah. Like being at a Mexican restaurant and you know <laughs> they, they don't speak English, so you just talk louder. Like, well, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't help anything, right? Like, yeah. like it's not they're not deaf. They don't right. speak language. You know, I talk. We use that in marriage counseling. You know, all the time because it's. Couples just don't know how to communicate with each other. And it's like learning a different language. And so a lot of that applies here too, is if we just entrench ourselves in our position and then just scream about it, man, we're not getting anywhere, right? And so it's just like the guy with the mask. We're not actually trying to solve the problem. We're just, we're just taking our, our posture, our, our, you know, taking our stand and we're going we're gonna to say it louder and louder and louder and we're not moving toward one another. And so, you know, but then I, then I look at, you know, I've got a friend in St. Louis who, you know, is a successful, you know, black man and could move out of the neighborhood where he is, but he chooses to stay there because mm -hmm. he wants to be a mentor to young men. He wants to teach them things that their dads can't because they're either in prison or they bailed or yeah. won't, you know, and so he stays there intentionally, even though his family's at, at risk and he's, he's wrestled with that. Like, man, I, you know, I don't want to do this at the cost of my kids getting shot, but yeah. like, I want to, so he, 
So yes, he goes to the protest. Yes, he, he speaks on Facebook. But you know what? He's also living it daily in his neighborhood. Yeah. He's, he's having kids in his home. He's, he's, doing, he's wiping down the tables. He's wiping down the door handles because he cares about the actual people involved and the danger there, not just an agenda and screaming it louder. And so, and, I, and same thing, you guys, you fostered and mentored so many kids and, and you didn't do that because of race primarily. I'm so you just, just cause you love people, right? Like, and, and you just, yeah. So how do we get there? Like, how do we, uh, and, and more than that, like, what, what can we do? Like you talked about community engagement with, with police officers, like, let's just, uh, you know, because if not, we're just, you know, in some ways we don't want to just add to the noise. I think conversation is good, but what else can we do? Like, let's, let's end there. I know, um, I know, Bo, you, you have some ideas. I know, Byron, you talked about, you know, you don't mind relating to anybody, but it, it's difficult when you're asked to apologize because you don't feel like you have anything to apologize for, right? right. Like, because you've been a, a police officer of integrity for 25 years. Right. And so that's difficult for you. So I don't know. Let's talk about how do we, how do we get more people in this space? Because we got them on the, on, on the polarized ends where, where we're having this conversation. How do we bring more people? Here? Can I speak first on that? Just because I have to get ready to leave for work, if you guys don't mind. No. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I came to Florida and right away I got involved with CASA GAL. Um, there are a bunch of kids and I'm not asking people to adopt. I'm not asking people to um, um, foster I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not even asking that you become a CASA GAL. What I, what I would say is start off by just picking one child and mentoring, just mentor one child that doesn't look like you and your family, right? And that can go from anyone. If you are someone of color, there are kids out there who, who, who are non that, that are all that are white that need attention and they need to be able to see that there's good people of color out there. Right. So, and so I think that's important. We have to get, we have to get involved with our children and that doesn't mean that they're biological children. We have to do that. Um, I, I think that we need police in more on foot patrol, get out of those vehicles you know, I feel like you need to walk. You need to know, um, you know, see people um, and, and, and actually stop and speak to them. Mm. You know, break down some barriers. And I think people who are not in uniform need to feel just as, just as if a lot of times I see if there's um, uh, military people in uniform, usually someone will go up to them and say, thank you for your service. Yeah. It needs to happen with law enforcement officers as well. You know, you, they need to hear that they're doing a good job, you know, and that you, there's people there that support them. And I think officers need to do the same thing in their communities. I think that they need to go out and speak to people. Um, and so those are my two biggest things that I would love to see. I think there also needs to be more community uh, meetings, um, just people, neighbors getting together um, and, and, and talking about issues real life issues. Um, and it has to start with someone in the neighborhood. It just takes one person and it, it, it should be you. Right. Um, and then um, I, there's so much, I've thought about this so much, but um, you know, those are my biggest ones. I believe, I think that um, 
it starts off with just talking and, and getting involved. Good. I see you guys later. I have to get ready for work. All right. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for your time. Bye. I don't have to go anywhere. Okay. <laughs> go ahead, man. Um, I think, you know, it's a myriad of things that you can come up with, you know, but a realistic aspect of it is, I just think that it needs to just, uh, people need to listen more than they talk. And, you know, just try to listen to the other side. Um, you know, and, and the fact that it has to be sides, you know, I misspoke on that. Just listen to a different point of view and see where you can find some commonality. You know, like Byron said, we don't have to agree on everything, you know, and it's not a because of I'm going to change your mind so you can agree with me. You know, it, it, in all actuality, you know, what I want, I can speak for me, is, you know, I just want an opportunity to be able to have a conversation with someone. And because I want to listen as well. I mean, because it's important that I listen and it's important that someone else listen and we can find a commonality and just work on that. If we can work on just some core commonalities of things, I think things will work out. Now, you know, I know we've had, uh, you know, at least in, in my group, conversations about defunding the police and what it means and taking money into more social work programs, education, things of that nature. You know, so I've had the conversations where I may agree or disagree with, you know, even those who have a similar point of view with me. You know, but what I also can see on the other side is that, you know, I, I see that in Chicago alone, because that's, that's what I know most. You know, Chicago taxpayers have paid over $600 million in the last 10 years in, in lawsuits of police brutality. So there is a systemic problem. So let's address that. You know, now it's also an, an aspect of what can we do to help the officers be, you know, is it more training? Is it more community relations? You know, so it has to be that conversation as well, because you can't just say, I'm going to be punitive to you and then you're going to change. And, and you know, and, you know, and that's like, I, I, I look at it as like if you take a, a person who is, you know, addicted to drugs, you send them to rehab for 90 days, they become clean, but you put them back in the same environment and expect them to thrive. You know, you, you have to help them change their environment and change their outlook as well. And so I think it needs to be that uh, concept. And I know in Chicago, this is what I noticed. And I remember I telling Heather this years ago, and she didn't catch it, but she, found, she brought it up a couple of weeks ago and said, I remember when you had this conversation where on the cars of the police department, it used to say to protect and serve, and now it just says law enforcement. And so I took that as like, you know, because things... Jim Crow was legal, slavery was legal, so you were enforcing laws that may not be uh, morally adequate. You know, so what happened to the protect and serve mantra and why did this go to law enforcement? And so, you know, that kind of, you know, dialogue I think we need to have, you know, with, with officials. And I, you know, and it's one of the books I recommend is uh, um, Black and Blue, where, you know, the, the officer talks about how, how he feels being a Black LEO and when he comes home, what he's not, you know, that, you know, so it's different. Because now Byron has sent me a passage. I know that's something difficult. You know, I can only imagine, you know, where we're at now. We have our, our police department is all black. And, you know, I talk to the chief often about how do you feel about that? You know, because he's working on his doctor. So we have a, some good conversations. And, you know, and I, you know, one thing he says, he was like, I want to make the first experience with law enforcement doesn't have to be punitive. That if it's something that can be 
a discussion or educational moment, he believes he can, you know, in that notion, they can get rid of uh, the recidivism rate. They can get rid of the prison population because then if you can catch them young and direct them, I think that's that, that you know, he, he wholeheartedly believes that. So I, I, I give it to him. And so I, I kind of like that idea of, you know, let's go in the community and let's talk about it. That also has to come from the parents as well in the black community. The parents as well have to be able to come to the conversation and, you know, I'm not going to say forget and forgive, but at least come and say, you know what, I'm going to come with an open mindset. And the police come with that same open mindset, then we don't have to worry about the politicization that's going on. Because at the end of the day, the people who are affected, you know, are me, you, and Biden. You know, the politicians aren't being affected in the manner that all of us are living this. You know, so... I wish it was a way to put the politicians on mute, you know, and, and let us, you know, the regular folks just have a conversation. But unfortunately, on both sides, it's inflammatory rhetoric that only is going to bring up angst and bad emotion. And so we need to have that civilized conversation. And so, you know, I look at, you know, and you talk about how faith has brought in that. I look at it, especially the black community of the, the parable of Job, of trials and tribulations constantly hitting the black community, but we don't want to rebuke God because we know in the end, hopefully, you know, that God is going to be our saving grace. And that's how I look at it. That's how my faith keeps me going in this. I mean, it really, really does. I mean, it's, it's an aspect of this stuff can really drive you crazy. Me leaving Chicago was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I won't tell Heather that because, you know, I always let her know that Chicago is, is better than Harrisburg, especially when it comes to pizza. But, you know, it, you don't it, like Mackey's? Yeah. No, I don't like Mackey's. <laughs> <laughs> and if Mackey's watch us, I apologize. My wife spends enough money for <laughs> for both of us. <laughs> but coming to a different point of view and seeing white men and women that aren't in power live next door to me, that we can actually cut grass together. We can coach kids together. You know, we can have a beer and talk about, you know, sports together. I never had that. And so it, it changed my mindset because I, I could only imagine if more people had that opportunity to speak to someone who they may feel may look different from them, but a lot of times have a lot of similar things in common. And so, you know, uh, I tell Heather this, and, and, and not to blow anybody's head up, but I said, Tim Bueller was the first white guy that I met that I actually had a great connection with. Byron was the first police officer that I actually had a great connection with, you know, and that never would have happened if I didn't move to this diverse area in Southern Illinois, you know, it's, and so now I look at Tim and, and, and you and Byron as, as my brothers. And so if something affects you guys, it affects me, you know, and I, you know, Heather and I were discussing for weeks. I was like, I want to, I want to reach out to Byron, but I, I you know, I, I don't want to, you know, but I finally said, you know what, I'm calling him because I thought about it. I was like, that's my brother. Why would I trip and why would he trip by me giving him a call? You know, and then I felt guilty because I said, I should have called you earlier. You know, and I, yeah. you know, and I felt bad on that because I know that man's heart. And, you know, and I know that if, if I called him and I needed anything from, you know, a, a hug or a prayer to $100, he wouldn't hesitate. And yeah. so, and I think, and that and that and all that happened. Why? Because we shared this connection of our faith, 
our faith brought us together. And so God didn't make any mistakes when he brought us together. So this was, you know, the journey. And I tell Heather this, and then it's going to sound bad. I said, we would never find a place like Journey. So Journey, I don't care if I'm if I'm living in, in Timbuktu, Journey is always going to be my home because this is where my love has really blossomed, not only for Christ, because I was I was fed mentally and spiritually, but for 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 brothers and sisters everywhere who were different. And I realized how I grew up wasn't how the whole world grew up. And so that's my little 10 minute spiel. <laughs> and that's so good. That and, good. And, and that, you know, I, I attempted to, to speak on, on this a couple of weeks ago and, and I quoted, I quoted Tony Evans who said the reason we haven't sol- solved the race problem uh, in America after hundreds of years is because you have people that are, um, away from God or not under God trying to bring unity. And then you have people under God who do, who, who, who aren't living out the unity that we have. And, and, and what you just said is because a lot of times what we do struggle with is white majority culture is relating to what I said earlier is, is the minority culture. So when you see George Floyd, you, you relate because that you can see yourself. Uh, and because of what I was explaining earlier and you have that in law enforcement and, and, most minorities have that, right? Hispanics and, you know, they feel that collective sense of us. So, man, that's what the gospel is supposed to, like, that's where the gospel does have this power to create an us that is not about skin tone. It's not about even socioeconomic. It's about, man, we, it's about blood, the blood of Christ, right? That we, we're together. And, and, and that is, is, you know, you know, so I want to hear, I love the way you articulated that. And hopefully, we can see how everything that we've done in this conversation is ultimately informed by the gospel because that's what's allowed us to, to have these perspectives and love for one another and shared experiences. So, man, that was beautifully articulated. I appreciate you sharing that. So, all right, B, you're up, man. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I've got a clear cut. Get a little closer. Most of the time, most of the time I have a, a, a job doing and it's traffic safety, you know, uh, I took an oath. That oath was that I would enforce the laws. Um, but another part of that oath was that I would be charitable to the inadvertent violating. Um, That's literally in the oath? Literally. Okay. Yeah. So whenever whenever I'm dealing with people on a day, day-to-day basis, you know, I, I, I have to balance, you know, the enforce the laws part. And I have to balance the, you know, we're doing this to change behavior. You know, we want people to, to slow down so that the crashes are, are less frequent and they're less severe whenever they do happen. So I'm balancing that, but yet the the older and and slightly wiser that I've I've gotten, you know, I realize that that also is an opportunity for me to to just kind of show. You know, people grace yeah you know and and i've got to be careful you know about uh, proselytizing <laughs> sure outright sharing the gospel because you know that that's uh, it'll be frowned upon by by the department sure. but i can show people christ's love just my my you know day-to-day activities and, and contact you know, um that's that's the biggest thing on on how the gospel gets played out with me on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and that's, that's 
screwed with, with anybody. But, you know, again, like I told you earlier, whenever, whenever you make that traffic stop and the very first thing was you stopped me because I'm black, my response to that now is different than what it might have been years ago mm-hmm. because of, and I hate to keep going back to it, but because of those conversations that we've had, you know, and, and it's, it's people like Bo that helped me get to that place. So uh, he's had a big impact on me. Uh, the, the race roundtable that we participated in after the Ferguson case, that was, that was a, a big one for me. Uh, the department that I work for does have trainings, you know, in place to, to help people get here. But again, I'm just being real, being honest. A lot of people resist that, you know, because they're being forced to go to something that hasn't been, doesn't, you know, just happened uh, organically, mm-hmm. like through a relationship that I have with somebody that I know and trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's the big thing for me is just, is just trying to, to, Show, you know, show people the love of Christ through my daily activities, you know, day in and day out with not just at work in general. Yeah. And I fail miserably all the time. <laughs> yeah, we all do. But yeah, I think everybody that knows you appreciates your, uh, the way you do show grace and mercy um, yeah. and, and the image of God. I mean, you're a, you're, you're a large man that nobody wants to mess with. <laughs> so gentle, though, like the, the, and so the strength and gentleness that you uh, display as a person, and then when you're in uniform, I think is uh, it honors the Lord, and and that's why you know I appreciate you being willing to have this conversation because I, I genuinely believe you don't have anything to apologize for that, that you have been a, a cop of integrity that you 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 were, you are the good guy you know like and and that that you know and that's part of the problem is associating you know all cops with one. Bad, but yeah, so I, I appreciate being willing to do that. And honestly, what everybody's saying here is is in, in different ways. It's like, you know, it's relational, like having conversations, moving toward one another. Yes, there's some, there, there's probably some reform, you know, that, that can happen from policy standpoint. But but those are going to be resisted without this, right? right. And so, because if it's just those things, then you're like you just said, it's going to feel like it's going to go back to the us and them narrative and it's not, but, and I, and I think that's the, the biggest encouragement we can all do is not sit around and wait on the system to change, but rather to, to be the ones that facilitate the change relationally, because we can sit around and wait on a politician or somebody to do it. And we're just going to, we're just going to further the divide. But if, when we take steps into the community to go up, as Heather said, to go up to the police officer or would, when police officers take to go, to go up to the people in the community, when, People like me who don't have, I, I'm not, you know, a person of color or a police officer, but, you know, when, I, when I'm trying to hear and listen and understand from both perspectives, I think that's where change gets traction. And that's where there's a real gospel opportunity to talk about, like, the gospel is the only one who, uh, the only thing that can uh, bring healing and hope to the offended, right? The person who's been abused and oppressed. Um, in different ways. It's the only thing that's really going to bring healing and hope there. It's also the only thing that's going to bring humility and, um, and grace to those in power um, and those who, you know, and so, you know, for, for those that want to say the church has no role to play in this and we, we just preach the gospel with the implication that we shouldn't talk about this or we shouldn't engage with this. I'm going, 
then we're leaving our most, like we're leaving the only thing that the only weapon that has power to break down these strongholds We're you're sidelining it like that. So we don't abandon it. You know, that that's what some are, some are rightly concerned that the church abandons the gospel to pursue a social agenda. And and there's, there's a right concern in that we shouldn't do that, but do we seek to flesh out the gospel's implications for the brokenness in our community when our, when our world is crying out in division, should we seek to apply that? I think so. Like, I, I, I think Jesus lived that out. I think, you see, there's a very physical nature. There's a very tangible nature to the ministry of Jesus. It's not just this ethereal preaching of a, of a gospel that gets you to heaven when you die. It's a very much a bringing. He, he tells us to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, to, to flesh that out. So, I appreciate the way that both of you have done that. Um, the, the, both of you are guys who are not just screaming about the mask. You're cleaning the tables. You're, you're, you're doing the work in the community. You're humble enough to have conversations, to, to read, to, to, to sit with and be patient with, you know, white people who don't understand and seek to educate and not just scream at and, and to foster kids and to be involved and to stop and say, you know, we know that you do those sorts of things that you bend down and pick up the kiddo, you know, and, and that's, and that's what that's what our world needs. So I appreciate the way that both of you lead by example, and um, and I hope I, this conversation has been uh, edifying for me, and I, I, I truly believe it will be for others. And I'm sure you guys got things that you did that we didn't get to. So let's make note of that, and let's schedule another one. We'll do we'll do it again. So good. thanks, guys. I would love to. Anytime for you guys. Anytime. Awesome. Thanks so much, bro. Man, we miss you. Miss you guys. Yeah, we miss you guys too, man. I'm so glad. I'm just happy to see you guys, man. It looks so comfy and homey there. I'm like. Ah. I wish I was there. <laughs> we hope you will be soon. All right. Well, tell uh, tell DJ we said hey, and uh, tell the Heather thanks. Hey, tell your kiddos. I can't believe how I can only imagine how big they are. We definitely, both of you guys are great dads. Tell your kiddos I said hey, and tell your wife I said hey as well. That we miss them as well. All right, brother. God bless you. Thanks, man. All right.